Welcome to Common Sense Institute's Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Megan Garn, and I'm the Director of Operations with Common Sense Institute. If you've been enjoying this content, I encourage you to subscribe to our e-newsletter, the Common Sense Digest, so you can stay up to date with important news and policy happenings. We feature our research, upcoming events, job openings, and more. You can subscribe at www.commonsenseinstitute.co.org. And now, here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. As Colorado continues to grow, one of the key issues the state faces is reliable availability of water. When investing in our state, developers, businesses, and even the general population all face the apprehension with what the future may hold with this key life-giving resource. Joining me in this timely discussion are CSI's 2022 Terry Stevenson Fellows. They have just released the report titled Adopting Colorado's Water Systems for 21st Century Economy and Water Supply. I'm pleased to introduce first Jennifer Gimble. Jennifer is a senior water policy scholar and former interim director and at the Colorado Water Center. Jennifer has experience in law and policy on a national basis, interstate and statewide water issues. She brings about 35 years of experience on water issues and was just awarded the 2022 Espinal Water Leader of the Year Award. Congratulations, Jennifer, and welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm also pleased to introduce Eric Kuhn. Eric is the retired general manager of the Colorado River Conservation District and co-author with John Fleck of Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River, published by University of Arizona Press in 2019. He brings over 40 years of experience on water issues. Eric, great to have you on board. Good. It's, well, um, thank you so much for inviting me, and, and uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity uh, to work with you. Well, I hope you say that after we get through with this, this podcast, okay? <laughs> okay, let's get started. Uh, congratulations to you both on getting this report released. It lays out many different compelling ideas and recommendations to adopt our current water system in Colorado. Before we get in this, uh, you see as a starting background that readers need to know about the current outlook for water in Colorado. Jennifer, how about you taking a shot at that first? Thank you very much, uh, Earl. It's very important that the premise of this paper is that Colorado is getting hotter and drier and that the competition for water is increasing due to climate change, to population growth, and also with respect to the, our obligations to the downstream states on our interstate compact. Jennifer, uh, I appreciate that. I, I wanted just a quick question on the compact. Uh, that compact, interstate compact, do I remember correctly that uh, even though we may decide what we want to do here as states, we also have to have the Congress approve whatever we decide? That's one of the reasons in the in the paper that we say it's not practical to assume that we should, could amend the compacts. Because it does take every state legislature and every and the Congress to and the Congress. To I'm going to come back to that in a second. Eric, what would you like to add? What Jennifer said. I think Jennifer basically outlined the basic problem we see, and that is in the future, Colorado is going to have to 
accomplish a lot more with less water. The reasons for that, as Jennifer outlines, are that within Colorado, we're a headwater state. All of our rivers, and we've got, uh, we're headwaters to four major river systems. They all flow out of the state. Every one of those rivers we have to share with our neighboring states uh, due to a series, not just one compact, but a number of compacts that we've been entered into over the last hundred years. So the waters that we have available to us are limited by these interstate agreements that are approved by every state and Congress, of course. As the supply diminishes because of climate change and because of our our use and because of competitiveness, uh, we're going to have to be much more diligent on really making the best use of every drop of water we have access to. I want to have you discuss a little bit more, if you could, about us being a headwater state. You mentioned legal obligations we have surrounding states, actually practically all the West except for the Northwest. That be a fair statement. That's a fair statement. Um, Colorado and up in Grand County is the headwaters of the Colorado River, our namesake river for the state. Colorado is the headwaters of the Platte River. Both the North and South Platte River start here in the northeastern Colorado and flow into Wyoming and then into Nebraska. We're the headwaters of the Arkansas River uh, above Leadville. And we're the headwaters of the Rio Grande River. All of these are major river systems that flow to uh, the Rio Grande that flows to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, The Colorado flows to the Gulf of Baja, California. And, of course, the uh, Platte River and the uh, Arkansas are a part of the Mississippi River system. So all of these rivers flow downstream, and they flow through many states. Beginning a century ago, there was intense competition uh, and legal debate over what states could do, uh, you know, how much access did states have to waters that flowed within that state. And the general approach that we developed through uh, Colorado's own Delph Carpenter, uh, an attorney from Greeley, uh, who was a legal theorist and quite accomplished. Um, He proposed interstate compacts where states would get together uh, with the federal government and with congressional authority and divide up the rivers. So these compacts are really contracts, legally binding contracts among states that that are approved by the state legislatures and by Congress. And thus, they're both state and federal laws. I want to follow up a little bit on that. Uh, I understand what Eric just said, and I understand that we have these agreements. But there has to be some basis for why California can argue for what they get. Arizona can argue for what they get. Is it, I'm going to grow faster than you are, so I need more water, or uh, I have less rainfall here, so I need more water. How are these agreements, how do they come to and how do I demand more or less for my state that uh, Eric uh, pointed out are all part of these compacts? So um, you've you've hit on history, which both Eric Eric and I really love to talk about. Great. And and you've given given the reason that Elf Carpenter suggested a compact, because in the early 1900s, when states were starting to fight each other for pieces of the river, they went to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court telegraphed that they would use the prior appropriation doctrine, which means if you use it first, you get it first. And so that was one of the reasons Delph Carpenter pushed this, because he could see the development in the Los Angeles area. And, and he thought, we need to equitably divide this river. 
And so consequently, you've got these people together to share science. Eric's book says maybe they didn't consider all the science and and figure out how, how to best divide it, making sure there's comedy on the river and that each of them can can then work within a certain framework. So you you grow to that that amount. Now California in the nineties did go use more than what they were normally supposed to get, which is four point four million acre feet. We got very concerned about that, saying, All right, the water's there, but that's not what your entitlement is and you have to cut back. And uh, then the drought hit and uh, helped everybody de- figuring that out a bit. Well, just as a point of curiosity, uh, so we said to California, you have to cut back. Did they? Yes, they did. Oh, okay. So they were cooperative. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, I'm a little bit suspect of, of uh, folks that have rights and then all of a sudden maybe overuse them. We have uh, nine river basin roundtables. Uh, we don't have to go through every roundtable geographically, but uh, Eric, you began to talk about them a little bit earlier, through what we were talking, the river basins, et cetera. But Jennifer, could you explain what the basic basin roundtable is and why you choose to address the water issues across the different regions of the state, which you did rather eloquently in the report. Thank you. I appreciate that. In the uh, 2000s, the legislature passed a law saying we need to have a conversation in the state among the different major basins. And in order to have that conversation and come up with how to best manage our water in trust state, They adopted the uh, Interbasin Compact Committee, which is uh, appointed by governor, some appointees by the legislature, and appointees by each roundtable. How long do they hold their office? Are they there during each gubernatorial uh, four years, or are they there for a longer period of time? No, they have have term limits. Term limits. And so then whatever governor is in place at the time. So it could turn over every four years or whatever. Yeah. This was a grassroots effort to to figure out these conversations at a base level. Mm -hmm. And since the state was already divided up into seven basins uh, for water administration purposes through the state engineer's office, they set up these roundtables, trying to put people at the table that were not just the normal water people that go to the table, but new interests, county commissioners, recreational interests, environmental interests. So uh, that was the basis of those roundtables. And actually, there are nine roundtables because we made the metro area a separate district. Okay. Eric, what would you like to add to it? Both of you have got interesting perspectives here. Well, and um, I'd just like to emphasize what Jennifer said. Um, you know, the idea behind these roundtables was that the local people knew best. Uh, you know, and so we have a roundtable like the Arkansas Basin, which is covers, what, 20 almost a quarter of the state. Uh, and then we have, you know, the metro area where, you know, maybe 70% of the, pe- the people live. Um, you know, and we also have places like the Southwest, which have a very different culture because they have two tribes and uh, the economy is very different. And, you know, going from uh, Cortez to Denver is uh, quite a trip. Uh, so uh, we've tried to make them, give them a local uh, control. The But recognizing these are also the state's waters. Uh, so it's a balance between local input, uh, the local entities know how to best manage their waters, but at the same time, the waters of the state belong to the people of the state, 
So there is a there is a role for the state government as a whole in the state legislature to address water policy on a statewide basis. I I, I want the two of you would. So let's go to Cortez. So how could that uh, roundtable in Cortez come up with something unique for themselves that might be different than the Front Range Roundtable? Can you give an example of of the uniqueness of the of the regional adaptation of this? Um, yeah, here's a, there are several uh, good examples, but one is uh, the Cortez area is home to the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, right? And uh, under um, federal and state law, they have some very senior rights because they've been here literally, you know, time immemorial. First users. Yeah. And okay. They, they go back a long time. <laughs> Their senior rights created a tension between um, uh, the tribes and other users that began irrigating water in the Montezuma Valley in the late 1800s. So they're all, they've, they've been using water for a long time. So what that Roundtable is in a unique position is to propose and develop uh, a dialogue between those competing interests and suggest, and they have done this, projects where they both benefit. Projects where we improve the um, diversion capacity and the, the efficiency of, of various projects so we make the water that is available go further. It brings into account what their local problems are. Where here in the uh, in the metro area, the overwhelming issue is how do we meet the needs of growth? You know, we we're going to look at another one and a half to two million people here in what we call the Colorado Front Range over the net, you know through twenty fifty, and that brings in a unique set of of problems that, quite frankly, Cortez doesn't have. Cortez is going to have enough water for a long time to meet its residents. Its problems are very different than those of, say, Thornton or Parker or Fort Collins or, or Colorado Springs. Yes, do the groups, Jennifer, uh, do the, the groups and the various roundtables get together and share a, what could one do to help the other, or is that asking too much? No, that's, that's exactly what they've been doing. And this is a good point uh, to kick off of what Eric said, is that the state has uh, been created a Colorado water plan in 2015. They are in the process of updating that, and they shared a draft to the plan uh, this summer. So we had the opportunity to use some of their information as we put this report together. But the water plan includes what we call basin implementation plans. So each basin roundtable looked at possible projects that were multi-purpose that would serve the basin and then overall serve Colorado. Because we have these different looks at things, I've noticed in the last 10 years, basin roundtables have started to get together. You know, okay. The Colorado River Basin Roundtable with the Arkansas, the South Platte Roundtable, to exchange those ideas. Well, could you give me an example of something that, that this, this interchange between one basin versus another has caused something that was more statewide than just their basin? Or where one basin helped another basin? Can you share that? Yeah, there's. Uh, when I was at the Colorado River District, uh, um, we engaged with uh, Northern Water, which serves. Uh, it's a conservancy district that operates the Colorado Big Thompson project and the Windy Gap project. It, uh, it serves uh, basically much of the north, the uh, Front Range north of Denver. Basically, with the encouragement and support of the roundtables. Uh, 
we reached an agreement with Northern on how to proceed with uh, a very important project that they're building uh, called the Windy Gap Firming Project. This is a project that was built in the 80s, but after uh, you know, 20, 30 years of operation, it discovered that it doesn't always have water in dry years, so it needed more storage. Uh, so the Colorado Basin, through primarily through the Colorado River District and others, Grand County, reached an agreement with Northern where we supported that construction. And in return, Northern provided some advantages uh, and some uh, things that the Grand County and the West Slope wanted in terms of stream flows. Uh, so we've done some very important cooperative uh, projects. And the roundtables don't really have the legal status. It takes someone like the Conservancy District or a Conservation District or the Water Conservation Board to actually implement these. They're, they are the ones that sign the contracts to get things done. Okay. So the roundtables are kind of advisory and saying what is the community's best interest. They can get together and cooperate between the various roundtables. Then they go to the various agencies if they agree upon something to say, hey, would you get together it seems to us that we'd both be benefited if you took this action. Is that a fair That's exactly what statement? happened, yes. That's great. So to some extent, the, the system's working. The system is working. Um, I think Colorado should be proud of what it's done. But what and our report says is there are more challenges. Well, let's talk about that. There's increasing competition for water. And it just seems to me that's a great lead into my question. Um, to, Eric, can you cl clarify what is that competition? And then I'm going to ask you, Jennifer. You know, you know, what what else can we do about it? Please. Well, I'll give you the competition for water. Is um, if you're a growing community here um, in the Denver area, uh, and you look at your system, uh, you know how many the geographic boundary of your town. And you look at, well, how much water do I need? Um, ultimately, when we're filled in with uh, homes and condominiums and, and businesses, um, and you, you know how much water you might have to, have to use in the future, well, you need to have a portfolio. You need to have a resource available to meet those future demands. A portfolio of water. A portfolio of water, well, exactly. A portfolio of stocks, and now I got a portfolio of water. It's this a, is good. It's a common it's a common phrase in the water business. Our water portfolio, and because most communities have water from a variety of different resources, you do that. You do that for redundancy. So these communities are looking around, you know, and what they found is there's no more native water. They just can't go to the river, the South Platte, and, and put a pump in the South Platte. Because what, are you creating water? What are you talking about, Eric? The water is all spoken for, and it has been for many years. So, so we're growing. All the water is spoken for. I still want to know, are you creating water? What are you doing? No, we can't create water. So what we have to do is go to where somewhere else, where someone else is using it. And oh, who okay. is that somewhere else? It's the irrigators on the South Platte. It's perhaps um, other basins. Just go, I need more water for my portfolio. And you could start looking around and you say, oh, here there are some farmers here, um, you know, out east of Greeley. Why don't I... Why don't I make them an offer and buy up their water rights and transfer their their water by a pipeline or, or something up the river to my community? Now, wait wait a minute. Uh, Jennifer, I don't mean to be lobbing a piece of dynamite to you here, but it seems to me that what Eric has just described is destroying the agricultural community of Colorado as an answer to meet our growth. Or am I missing it? Missing something? 
He's not advocating that. He's saying that's an unintended consequence of us rearranging who has the water. And if your next question, Earl, is what do we do about that? It is. Our main message, I think, is that regionalization of projects, combining infrastructure, combining water right portfolios, is the answer so that we can more efficiently use okay. water. I understand the words, but I don't really understand their meaning. These integration you're talking about, give us a little bit more detail what you're saying. Rephrase what you just said so I can understand it. Let me kick this over to Eric because he's got a great example on the WISE project. Okay. Good. The, the, the WISE project was a, an agreement made among Denver, Aurora, and a number of communities here in southwest Denver, many of them that are fully reliant on groundwater, a non-renewable resource. Who are the agencies? Denver, Aurora? Is this just the county commissioners? No, no. It's like Parker Water and Sanitation District, Centennial Water District, Douglas County County Water District. I think there's a All the people that can write a contract and adhere to it. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Now, in most years... Denver and Aurora have a surplus supplies. We don't realize that, but Denver and Aurora really plan, and all water users plan for the dry year. They don't want to overcommit their water supply in a dry year, right? So, because you have to have water for a tap. So, in these wetter years, and in the average years, they have extra water. Well, what did they do? They reached an agreement to deliver this water via the WISE project to these entities in the South Metro area that use groundwater. Well, now they all use surface water in seven, eight, nine years out of 10, and they'll rely on their groundwater in the dry years, and they have enough groundwater to give Denver and Aurora back some groundwater in these very dry years. So everyone benefits because... And when you're doing a water plan for a city, you want to know how much water you can deliver in that critically dry year. And that's what you plan for. You end up with a lot of surplus water. So regionalization, this is a small example, but there are many communities that have surplus reusable water. They have surplus water on an annual basis, but we make it very difficult in this state to share water to exchange it. So that's why regionalization means making best use of the resource, the multiple resources for that year for the entire region. That's interesting. So the WISE project is an example that you you think that we can use in other parts of the state. Or in expanding the WISE project here in the Denver area. And why aren't we? Because there are Many constraints based on what we call water rights. You know, Aurora and Denver have a water rights portfolio. Denver takes, and both of them take water from other basins, including the Colorado. And when they appropriated that water, when they went to water court to obtain that water, they said, well, we're going to use it in our service area. Well, now they've got to use it out. If they share it with these southern metro areas, they're using it outside their service area. So the people that signed on or opposed their water rights in court now have to say, well, we can relax those provisions so you can share more water when it makes sense. How, how, do, you, how do you change that? I, I'm not certain I follow that. Well, you can, you can change it. You really just need an umbrella agreement. 
you and who would have to agree to the umbrella agreement? The cities of Aurora, Denver, the South Metro areas, and the and the West Slope part. And who would start that, or who would be the leader in doing that? That's where we're we're missing who's going to be the leader. We really think the state of Colorado, through the Colorado Water Conservation Board, we think the mayors and, and organizations that represent the broader metro area and the West Slope need to push for that. They need to push. Well, now you're talking about several people being mayors, and you and I both know that uh, that means one mayor has to get everybody together to make a decision, or do they have some way that they're organized, Jennifer, that they could maybe move forward as uh, Eric is suggesting? Well, it takes a leader. It takes That's somebody what I'm to, getting to, at. Okay. To, to stick out there. Another example uh, in the works right now is, uh, I understand a couple of weeks ago, we had mayors of the northern Colorado communities and water managers come together and start having that exact kind of conversation about what can we do to be more efficient in our use and to help each other out. And so it, 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 takes, it takes a leader, and, it, and then generally it needs backup by, you know, by the people, and sometimes we need tweaks to the law, to the legislature. And one thing, Errol, I want to make clear is the water law that we have here in Colorado is a, a good framework, and we've shown that it's flexible enough to meet society's needs as necessary. And so we've recommended a couple of times that maybe the legislature should look at certain things. It sounds to me that we're, you're saying that not only is this report pointing out that, that um, we've got an issue, which has been around for some time, but you're also challenging us as a public that uh, in our public elected officials, hey, here's an opportunity to get together because we have examples as to how it works. It's your job to make this a priority. Am I hearing you correctly? That's correct. Well, hopefully people that listen to this podcast can pick up on that and and get engaged and talk to their mayors. One place to start, their legislators, and how about the governor's office? Water Conservation Board, governor's office. Water Conservation Board. And, And their water utilities. Water utilities. I frankly can't thank you enough for the candor with which you're suggesting that what we can move forward. But at the local government water management agencies, it seems to me, Eric and Jennifer, you've given us kind of a guideline as to what can be done or how it should be done so that we get better use out of the water resources we have. Have I, am I hearing this conversation correctly? Yes, exactly. And, and it goes back to our basic theme. We're going to have to do more with less water in the future if we're going to maintain the quality of life that Coloradoans deserve to have. Well, let's build on that for a second before we close out. Less water in the future. Do we going to have the farmers uh, raise less crops? Or are they going to have better irrigation methods? Or are we suggesting uh, like what they're doing in California, or not California, Aurora, where you don't have uh, natural turf, but you're going to have artificial turf uh, for new houses. Uh, What are you you all suggesting for use of less water? Jennifer, I'm going to start with you. All of the above. In other words, whatever we can do. And what we're trying to do is ignite some imagination and uh, show where it has worked and asking people to be creative in their thinking. I I think uh, a lot of it is going to be managing turf, managing grasses, um, consumptive use on grasses. But 90% of our water is agriculturally used. I mean, I'm not trying to argue with you, but... A lot, a lot of that in the West Slope. It's like goes, robbing a bank. You know, if, you, if you're going to do it, go where the money is. Yeah, and I, I live on the West Slope, and I live in an area. There's a lot of my neighbors have pastures, but they don't grow a 
they don't grow anything for a profit or they don't they don't make a living uh they they do it for a lifestyle a lot of the turf here on the front range for example we don't need to have less grass we just need to have more grass that is native in origin and will survive on 15 to 20 inches of rain per year and not 80 inches of rain per year if sort of some of the export you know as we call the Kentucky bluegrass we can do this and communities have shown they can do it the, the city of Las Vegas has grown from a million and a half people to over two and a half to close to two and a half million people and they use 25 percent less water today they did than they did in 2000 because they've controlled what they call ornamental turf and consumptive uses that don't make sense in a desert. We're a high desert here. Most of Colorado is a high desert. And we we maybe don't have to do as many drastic things as they did in Las Vegas, but we're going to have to do the same kind of things. Eric, Jennifer, I, I can't thank you enough for all the years you've spent on this particular topic and the expertise you have. It's really, to me, it's refreshing to see that, you know, the two of you come together like you have and be so specific in what you're suggesting that we can do and lay out that, hey, we have the methodology at the local levels that can get together. But as you said, uh, Jennifer, a little leadership every once in a while to make make it a priority would help. And uh, I know, uh, see, I read the... uh, what was it, uh, the report that we had from Patty uh, Limerick that uh, was a book she wrote on... Uh, a Ditch in Time. A Ditch in Time. Is that right? And it was 100 years. Well, they were well ahead of the 100-year impact. They were in the late uh, late 19th century mm-hmm. when uh, they, they had the foresight. And what you're challenging us to do is, I think, take action now for 25 to 50 years from now. Not just for what you get today. Am I on pace here? Am You're I on exactly message? correct. Thank you for making for making that statement. That's a well, good summary. Welcome. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Eric, thank you for all that you do, and Jennifer for all you do. Thank you, Earl. Thank good you. To be here. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.